Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, uh, Jack Symes. He's a public philosopher and writer. He's the producer of the Pan Psycast Philosophy podcast and editor of the Bloomsbury series, Talking About Philosophy. He's currently a teacher and researcher at Durham University in the UK. And he's the editor of the book, Philosophers on Consciousness, Talking About the Mind, which features a number of prominent contributors, as does his newest book, available now, Philosophers on God, talking about existence. Jack, it's, it's a pleasure to have you back on. Thank you for coming. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be back. Absolutely, man. And so in the book, Jack writes, the natural world is imbued with enormous complexities. Trees respond to seasons, birds flap their wings, homo sapiens build, burn, and recognize moral facts. Yeah. And, and when our minds reflect on such phenomena, we stand in admiration of their beauty. The wonders of the natural world are perplexing. Moreover, in order for the natural world to exist in the first place, there have to be complex laws of nature, a precise strength of gravity, a constant rate of cosmological expansion from which the forest of life can emerge. Further still, there must be a cause to, to which these laws owe their existence, a source of the conditions for life, a wellspring of intricacy, a river of Eden and an or damn, this is so good, and an origin of existence. That's the focus of the book, why there is something, a universe rather than nothing, the reasons for the world's complexity, the purpose of our lives and the secrets of our futures. Our, our guides to these questions are some of the world's most significant and influential thinkers. So this is phenomenal. And first of all, just phenomenal, phenomenal writing. Uh, and then second of all, I want to say just in terms of the actual, uh, just the actual way you put together the book, I mean, it's a lot like Philosopher's Unconsciousness, which we obviously spoke about before. So I actually want to ask you kind of a simple question uh, before we actually get into the thick of philosophy. Uh, why did you want to put together a book on God? You guys already started out with a book on consciousness, and it seemed like, it just seemed like it was one of those questions, you know, uh, that was never really going to have a fundamental answer. And then you take it even kind of further, and you're like, oh, well, now let's make it even more difficult and now talk about God. Uh, so why did you think that this was a book that let's say people would want to read? Uh, why was it that you thought that it was still an important question to think about? And why did you choose those particular thinkers to, uh, to address the questions? Hmm. Thank you, Leon. I appreciate your, your kind words about the book as well. And I suppose to answer your first question, why we decided to explore the question of God and God's existence and the mystery of existence, why there's something rather than nothing. It's just the topic in philosophy I'm most interested in personally. So I've got two books on uh, God coming out this year. There's obviously, as you've mentioned, Philosophers on God, talking about existence. Uh, the little cell here, the, the paperback comes out on the 22nd of February, 24. And mm -hmm. then my book, The Monograph, which so it's just me all the way through rather than an editor collection like Philosophers on God. Uh, Defeating the Evil God Challenge comes out at the beginning of June. So... Uh, those who I often do philosophy with, like the guys on the, the podcast or people around the university, even like friends and family in my day-to-day -day life, they're not surprised that there's like two books on God coming out because mm. one, I'm rarely available because I'm always having to work <laughs> on And two, because this is the topic I've been fascinated by for, for such a long time. I think it's probably the biggest and most important question in all of philosophy, like the question of why anything exists to begin with and the implications that has for the meaning and purpose of our lives. Mm. And so with the book Philosophers on God, like you say, it bears some similarity with Philosophers on Consciousness because in the first chapter, we ask the question, why does this matter? And the same thing happened with Philosophers on Consciousness. So Daniel Hill writes the Why God Matters chapter. And then we go through these 
traditional theists, so Richard Swinburne and William Lane Craig and Mohammed Salazar-Poor. Then we get into some of the new atheist school of thinking. So uh, Susan Blackmore, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Stephen Law. And uh, we have Eugene Nagasawa's problem of evil for atheists, like embedded within there. So it's not just thematic, but a conversation, a journey, a, a narrative that flows through the text. And we end with um, Sylvia Jonas's critique of both atheism and theism. Jessica Frazier's attempt to introduce uh, Hinduism as a possible solution to the mystery of existence. And we end with uh, pantheism, like we did with mm. philosophy, where the world is God. So I hope it tells a story and I hope all of the ideas in there are sufficiently challenged. Uh, it was a really difficult book to put together, but in mm. the end, I'm, I'm delighted with it. And somehow, if you know, if people ask me whether or not I think it's as good as the first, I think it's it's better than the first because I've managed to uh, craft some of the the skills a little better, and uh, I, I love this topic more than any. So, uh, hopefully, that shines through in the text. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and I'm actually curious, uh, whose perspective were you more sympathetic towards, or rather, did did you at least find yourself um, agreeing with? Or do you feel do you feel that it's more th that it's pantheism in the end for you that everything is God and that's kind of where uh, maybe where uh, you lie as far as uh, your own perspective? Yeah, yeah, good. I'm not I'm not committed to a particular position. Mm. I think there's something in all of the contributions and something in all the contributors' wider thinking that I have find great value in, and mm. it's often why they're there in the book to begin with i think all of these people have important things to say Absolutely. in terms of like my own worldview i this neither book actually is part of a wider project of trying to convince somebody of a particular point of view the second book uh, defeating the evil god challenge in defense of god's goodness you might think Okay, the title there seems to be like an argument for the existence of a good God or something. But I'm simply trying to respond to one of the uh, popular arguments for atheism, which I don't think anymore. I used to think it was a very good argument, and now I think it's not. So I've just begun telling my students and other people who ask that I'm agnostic about being agnostic, and mm -hmm. I'm not sure of it. Yeah. So going into the arguments for God, so do you find that, well, first of all, do you find that any of them actually continue to hold up? Because a lot of them are from kind of more medieval and ancient times. And if you do, which ones do you think still do? Controversially, I think the best argument for the existence of God is the modal ontological argument. I think so because I find it incredibly difficult to pinpoint where it goes wrong. And a lot of them, common objections to it uh, um, uh, you know, aren't very strong slash at least contentious. But I find, you know, I find motivation in all of them. If I was going to rank them, I'd say ontological argument, the cosmological argument. I'm not as convinced as the argument from fine tuning as other people. But I think collectively what you have is a strong case for the existence of God. And although I don't consider myself a theist and I don't go all the way, I struggle to identify that threshold where I'd go, right, now I'm going to go start going to church or now I'm going to call myself a theist because I felt convinced of atheism before and you know, it turned out that my reasons for being a strong atheist weren't very good. So I'm not quite sure. But I think collectively, these arguments give you a strong cumulative case for mm. maintaining that belief in God is reasonable. 
Yeah. So can we go through them? Not all of them, obviously. I mean, you know, we only have so much time, but we can we go through at least some of the strengths of each argument and why you find them to be so. Good. Well, let's begin with the cosmological argument as this taps into the subtitle of the edited collection, the mystery of existence or mm -hmm. um, talking about existence, better put, which is the actual subtitle. And so the Kalam cosmological argument goes something like this. Uh, everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. And the conclusion is that, therefore, the universe must have a cause. And this argument's best associated with, in contemporary philosophy of religion, popular figures like William Lane Craig. And I think that's a, a good argument for trying to establish the existence of something that's necessary, something that doesn't begin to exist, but always has existed. And Jessica Frazier, who's an exceptional uh, philosopher of religion, well, philosopher of Hinduism, and obviously Hinduism ties into various different strands of philosophy. I recommend checking out her work if you haven't done so. Mm -hmm. She says something brilliant in her chapter where she goes like, every metaphysics needs to pick out some kind of necessary thing. Well, any uh, sensible metaphysics involves someone going, well, that's the necessary thing. So Dan Dennett in his chapter goes, if there's a necessary thing, then let it be the universe and, mm. and see why atheists might uh, favor such a view. But I mean, that argument that you need some kind of necessary cause or necessary events, the universe, I think, strong. And I think once you've got that necessary thing, you can do a kind of deduction to figure out what sort of thing that would be. So it would have to exist outside of time and space to bring it into existence time and space and that thing it seems like a sensible candidate for that would be consciousness or a, a non-physical mind and this thing would plug in the fine tuning argument have to be intelligent enough i.e knowledgeable enough to create a world that is fine so finely tuned to allow for the existence of of values and and life and consciousness and these other goods hmm. and then I suppose the ontological argument's a separate one, right? So you've got sure. the perfect being thesis says that by definition, God is the being that which nothing greater can be conceived or the perfect being thesis better stated is that God is the being that is, uh, no being is metaphysically greater than. So God is the greatest metaphysical being. And what would that involve? It would hold, involve holding all great making properties to the highest possible degree. And we typically take things like power and knowledge and goodness to constitute great making properties. They're things that are good to be in and of itself. And so God, if God is perfect, and he's the greatest metaphysically possible being, holds all of these properties to the highest possible degree. And then you get, uh, the, you get the traditional God with all, all of their properties too. Actually, I, I do have a question about that. So, um, yeah, so Richard Swindler, for example, uh, especially in that uh, debate uh, that was recently on your podcast, mm. uh, something that didn't quite, I didn't quite gel with, but perhaps uh, we'll, we'll come to that understanding. Okay, so uh, why is there an assumption that uh, if there is a God, he must be all just all good specifically like why is it necessarily all good why couldn't god encompass you know aspects of good and evil why do we just just attribute just only goodness to god 
And then and is that even bad to assume that God could have these, you know, could be, could have, uh, how should I put this rather? It's like, uh, let's say uh, people argue uh, God is uh, responsible for all the uh, good in the world. Let's say somebody says, proposes something like that. Um, why would it be terrible if God was also responsible for all the uh, bad as well? Maybe, maybe there's something, you know, some kind of value to that as well. Uh, people just think it's all only all good. I don't know. Excellent. So there are, I suppose there are two questions that fall out of that, Alan. One is like uh, asking the theist to offer us a defense or theodicy in response to the problem of evil. So either actually give God's justification for why there's evil, a theodicy, or just a, a logically possible reason for why God might allow it to exist, i.e. Mm -hmm. defense. We can go through some theodicies and defenses such as you know, you need evil for character building, for opportunities to do good. Uh, you need it uh, for uh, intrinsically valuable free will or the value of free will to choose between them. But I think your more interesting question out of the two is pushing that debate forward when you go, well, why is it that you think that God is all good? Why can't God be both of these things given the existence of good and evil in the world? And sure. that's the the very topic of the second book, Defeating the Evil God Challenge. So Defeating the Evil God Challenge attempts to address this question, which is the Evil God Challenge. Why is it significantly more reasonable to believe in a good God than an evil God? It seems that when you run the cosmological argument, the design argument, uh, you have the problem of evil and the problem of good and all these other arguments, they seem to have a symmetry between them that when you've got this good God and you've got this evil God, that the arguments end up being roughly as strong for each of them. Like you can reverse the, let me break this down very slightly more. So say you believe in God because of the cosmological argument, you know, the universe needs a cause or the, and the fine tuning argument that it needs a designer. Neither yeah. of those arguments tell us anything about the moral character of God. Mm-hmm. So the question is, why should we believe God is good and not evil? Why should we attribute goodness and not evil to God? Now, the school of thought that is typically aimed to do that is uh, philosophical theology. So um, whether it be creation theology, where you have to look to nature and go, well, there's good things in the world, so therefore that must exist in God somehow. or God has a reason for bringing it there and is therefore good. And you can do the same with evil. So I think that's the essence of the problem, right? When we look at the world, we see good and evil. Mm -hmm. And it seems like we've got no reason to favor a good God over an evil God. But then when we look at some of the other reasons that theists give for believing in a good God over an evil God, it seems like the deck is stacked significantly um, better in favor of good God than evil God. So mm -hmm. take like this idea of perfect being theology in which theists claim that, again, God is the greatest metaphysically possible being and holds all great making properties. We take it to be greater to be good than evil. Like if you had the option between saving something that was good and saving something that was evil, you think all mm -hmm. of the things are equal, regardless of what that thing ends up doing, mm -hmm. you should make the good thing. It's just better to be good. Mm. And so there are arguments like that to, that I don't think are as strong in favor of evil God. We'll take revelation theology. It, the evil God challenger or those who are pretending to believe in an evil God for the sake of undermining traditional theism, 
they say, well, an evil God would give us these conflicting scriptures and look at all the nasty thing God does in scripture as well, drowning millions of people in a, in a flood and only saving a handful. seems like God, one, does bad things in scripture and two, reveals conflicting scripture. So it looks like scripture helps us believe in an evil God over a good God. Right. Here's the reason why we might be skeptical of an argument like that as well and attribute goodness to God is that God does good and bad things in scripture. Let's just give the challenger the benefit of the doubt and agree with them there. But then scripture also includes these explicit statements about God's goodness, such as no one is good, but God alone and the like. Mm -hmm. I find similar things in the Guru Granth Sahib and in the Quran, I'm just using the Christian examples because they're, they're handy and come to mind quicker. Mm -hmm. And so you can contextualize God's evil actions with the good actions plus the explicit statements, but you can't do it the other way around. So you might think that's a bit of a minor asymmetry, but the question mm -hmm. here is, once we have God's power and knowledge and we're trying to figure out whether a God is good or evil, and you're presented with that evidence, explicit statements about God's goodness plus good actions versus simply evil actions. You've got a stronger case for good God. Mm -hmm. and you keep doing this very uh, long and arduous process of going through each of the arguments within these schools of theology. And you find that there are a great number of them that work for good God and only mm -hmm. really one example of it working for evil God, which is there's evil in the world. Yeah. So then I would ask, okay, um, let me just see, because I want to really frame this well. Uh, okay, so when you're thinking about God and God producing people with free will, so I, I first I want to ask a question before I even say anything. So are we saying that based on at least some of these arguments that God does have free will himself or herself? I suppose it mean it, the question is whether God has free will or not. Right, in producing people, right? So let's say God produces people with free will. Would this mean that God has free will? I'm not committed to a view on this question. Mm -hmm. And I don't, again, the, the the scope of the book on evil God is simply just to get rid of this argument for atheism, which is against theism, to respond mm -hmm. to the God challenge. So I don't have a view on that in particular. Um, I find it difficult to understand how one can believe in a God that is perfectly good that a part of that perfect goodness doesn't require God to necessarily bring into existence the world. That right. seems like something a perfectly good being would have to do. They would have to be selfless. They would have to do things for the ends of, of others. Hmm. So if you were going to push me on answering that question, my knee-jerk reaction to it would just be, yeah, like God necessarily has to bring in to existence the world if God is perfectly good. Oh, interesting, because, I mean, uh, this is, wow, this wasn't even where I was going, because that actually seems more deterministic to me. It seems a little bit more inevitable. But here's what I was thinking, and this is, I'm going to try my best to really not be argumentative. I know last time, Jack, you and I kind of got into it. Uh, so I want to, I really want to ask questions. So this is not, me not being passive aggressive, I'm really just asking, because I would wonder, this is the challenge that I would have, let's say, for somebody like Richard Swinburne, or at least a, a question I would have for him. I would ask, okay, so if God does create people with free will who are then able to do evil, but then God is 
is something or someone or whomever that's perfectly good. I would just wonder how does that causal chain work? So is it that God, let's say, with or without free will in some way that he produces people with free will and okay, then they, you know, do evil, but then that kind of in some ways, uh, we posit the question of, but how is it possible that first of all, let's say if he doesn't have free will, how does he create people who do have free will? And then if he does have free will and then he creates people who have free will and then do evil, then isn't it then possible that he himself could do evil? But then I, I don't know, I guess then I would wonder if he can do evil himself, uh, isn't it possible that he maybe from experience learned that, Hey, Oh, this is bad. So now I should do good. You see, like when you look at the causal chain, these questions start to come up. So is it that uh, God, again, how is it that God first of all produces free will? And then also how is it that an all good God in some ways produces evil? Good. Okay. So let me take on the first question. You might have to remind me of, of the second one. Just mm -hmm. the, the first question is how does God create free beings? If God, him or her, herself or themselves isn't free. Mm -hmm. And my answer to that would be, you, God doesn't need to possess this free will in order to create something that is free. As in, there is a sense in which you know, when we look at the world, we see things that create things that are other or distinct from themselves, right? I've, mm -hmm. I have like uh, brown hair and maybe my partner's got brown hair and then we produce a child which has, neither of us have brown hair in that maybe that genetically doesn't hold up actually, does it? Mm, <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking that's the saying out loud. Let's, I'm yeah. um, for examples today let's just accept the point that um you can you can you don't have to possess that property in order to create something with it for example i don't need an engine to create a car which has an engine right the properties of the thing i can create can be distinct from my properties all i need is the power to bring that thing into existence so mm -hmm. god has the power the know-how and the will through his goodness to bring in to existence people which are free in the same way that your mechanic has the power, the know-how and the uh, motivation to fix or build your, your car. And so I think in that way, God doesn't need it, but there is a sense in which God needs something to do it. Right. God, but that is those other attributes I've listed and does it out of necessity. And you can liken it to, there are other things that God can't do. Maybe this links to your second question, Leon was your second question how God, why God can't do other things like sin and the like, or like he's well, you right. So I, yeah, I'll just I want to kind of expand on it too. So yeah, so the question here is, is if there's this causal chain that links from something that I don't even want to use the term God, God, let's say just something, right? So something that is all of one thing in a sense, pure, right? So how does that pure thing create somewhere down this chain something that does end up at least in part being evil? So that's what I'm wondering. I'm wondering in what world would it work where let's say this thing doesn't. I don't know if it has a conception of evil. I don't know if it's learned that, hey, evil isn't good, you know, through trial and error. I don't know, because in all of its infinite wisdom, it knows evil is bad. But then my question is really just like, how in that chain, how does something that, again, is purely one thing produce another? It's like saying, uh, how does like the color red at some point produce the color yellow? That's really the best thing that I could think of as an analogy. Hmm. So the answer to your question, simply put, is that God doesn't create evil like simpliciter let's say like there's no point where god goes given our state of our world that it's not a good world so the premise the underlying premise of your argument seems to be something like so god creates this this thing i.e the world and let's say the argument i've outlined is correct and god does that out of necessity 
then there's going to be a point where look, God looks down at the world and, and I know you might not like this example, Alan, but sees one of Adam Sandler's movies and goes, <laughs> oh no, what have I done? I, I do should love have... it, by the way. Yeah. Oh. Right? There's evil in the yeah. world. I didn't mean for there to be evil. God's not doing that. God's looking at the world and going, well, that's char- that's helps people develop their characters when they have to sit through two hours of, of that film. It helps them appreciate a good film. <laughs> the an intrinsic goodness in Adam Sandler having the ability to create things like that. Um, and he's got the choice between taking one role or finding another career path. And I think if he was just going to do those things mechanically, like an automaton, then the world lacks a significant amount of goodness. And so I think what the theist would say to your question, Leon, is the world is overall good. The world is perfectly or the best, it's not necessarily the best possible world, but the world is still the best type of possible world because there might not be a perfect world, right? But there might be various types of perfect worlds. And so mm-hmm. in that, the world still fulfills that criteria. And so God hasn't made a blunder or a mistake, but- oh, uh, I- I'm sorry. Can can I just really quick? I just want to clarify. Um, because I, I feel like um, uh, I just feel like my point uh, wasn't clear. No, so I don't necessarily mean why is there. Okay, yeah, I don't necessarily mean uh whether the world is should or shouldn't be good per se. What I okay, let me frame it this way. So I'm wondering how is it possible that again, right? So a yellow thing creating uh, let's say a red thing or whatever, or you know, orange creating a yellow, whatever, right? So I'm just wondering how even a little bit of evil. Let's say if we even agreed the quantities to me are really here unimportant. So if let's say we agreed that one percent of the world is evil i would just in my mind i would wonder how does a thing that's purely good in some ways down that causal chain create something that's even one percent evil so i guess again the, i want to clarify this firstly on is this one percent evil gratuitous evil i.e evil which doesn't serve some other ends such as goodness I would say, yeah. So like, let's say something like somebody dying of cancer, uh, let's say floods, earthquakes, 9-11, you know, whatever. I would say that those things, at least on the surface, don't seem like they're serving some bigger purpose. Mm. So I suppose, again, the theist just denies that that is like the denies the existence of gratuitous evil. Okay. Uh, Peter Van Inwagen argues that God could be compatible with it, but the overwhelming majority of of traditional theists are just going to say there's no such thing as gratuitous evil. Now, if you were going to say that that, on the other hand, one percent was non-gratuitous evil, i.e., serve some other end, then the traditional theists will tell you that that's for some good, like the syringe that goes into your arm to give you the the vaccine. Like, yeah, it's bad when like it hits your skin, you might think, but once properly contextualized, you see that that's that serves some good end in the mm-hmm. same way. Your question might be, if my doctor's really good, then how can they stick me with that sharp needle? You'd go, oh, you're sort of missing something there. It's mm-hmm. 1% bad. But when you consider the whole, you'll realize that this is a, a good state of affairs rather than the bad one. And that's how your good doctor uh, can can get off without getting in trouble at work. Gotcha. Yeah, plus, plus our concept of evil is so uh, subjective in the sense. So I, I agree with what you're saying in, in the sense that how do we not know that some sort of um, act which we might consider evil or some sort of event that we consider evil doesn't serve some greater good end, right? I mean, uh, perhaps, okay, I, by the way, I don't want to offend anyone, of course, who's listening to the podcast. You've offended say, me. Someone who, uh, let's say, um, <clears throat> dies of cancer, let's say, right? Well, of course, someone can argue, well, 
if God was good, they wouldn't allow people to die from cancer. It's just unfair. Maybe somebody who uh, didn't deserve to, maybe could have lived longer, maybe, uh, didn't deserve to die of that cancer. Uh, okay, agree. I totally agree. On that level, I agree. However, uh, what if people dying from cancer perhaps uh, lets people understand the value of life and to perhaps, um, while they live, try to live life to the fullest? That could be one thing. Maybe enough people die from cancer that eventually a cure uh, to cancer, being that it's it's this uh, glaring problem that maybe enough uh, of other you know other human beings observe that uh, issue and then perhaps you know come to some sort of solution to that issue. Um, who's to say, right? Uh, Can I add to that when you're done? Sure. And then also, I imagine that like I mean, again, I can't. It's this is hard to propose, right? But I mean, I would say. When I, I mean, when I think of God and who, who am I, right? But when I think of God, I think of this sort of non-dual being, like that, and just like I don't think necessarily good and evil, but there probably is something that is, uh, it is beyond anything we can sort of conceptualize. And as you said, uh, Jack, it's uh, the the highest metaphysical uh, entity that we could sort of. Um, you know, uh, uh, have a concept of, well, you can't even have a concept of it, but if we had to, right, right. Yeah, but we're going to, well, so yeah. So then uh, now piggybacking off of what Alan said. So Jack, would you say that, um, I, I mean, you probably wouldn't say this, but I wonder what your thoughts are. So do you think that maybe it's at least possible that uh, a lot of times when we're saying, uh, let's say something is more good than evil, or let's say, you know, there's this greater plan or however you want to kind of conceptualize it. Do you think it's also possible that it's kind of like, uh, people in a ways wanting to, uh, eat their cake and have it too? in the sense that, okay, well, everything is good and bad if you think about it. I mean, it's really all about perspective. So what I mean here is that like people are essentially saying that like, yeah, let's just focus on all of the good perspectives. Okay, so here's the good that comes out of it. But we don't necessarily think too deeply about the evil because we sort of explain it away. It's like, yes, we can have evil, but then like, but we can also just focus or we should rather just focus on the good. Meaning here's the evil part or let's say the bad part, however you want to conceive of it. But we'll say yes, but the bad part is not so bad because it's ultimately leading to the good. But it's a little bit I guess I would say it's convenient because yes, but then the good part also leads to the evil and then the evil part leads to the good and it's all very cyclical, right? So I guess why are we explaining the world as just purely good just based on the fact that good comes out of evil when the reverse is true as well? That's brilliant. Uh, Leon, I think you've tapped into the, the heart of the debate really with the problem of evil or the evil God challenge more generally there, which is this question of why should we take it that things are bracketed in happiness and pleasure rather than pain and suffering. Why can contextualize it one way rather than the other? And yeah, we could sit here and you can run all of these reasons for why that bad turns out to be a good and vice versa, from moral actions to things that we find in nature. There are a couple of things to say on this. The first is that, as Eugene Nagasawa's argued brilliantly. This is also a problem which is faced by the atheist as well, well, the existential optimist. He says that in addition to moral and natural evil, there's also systemic evil, i.e. the system that underpins the material world, evolution by natural selection, is just pumping out suffering and, and necessitates the suffering of mm. countless creatures, both in history and the present day. And it seems like the fundamental nature of the world is bad in itself, he says. That's a big problem for atheists that want to have uh, optimism. 
and believe in evolution by natural selection. And even more problematically, those amongst them who want to use the existence of this evil as an argument against the existence of God. I think he's right to say, Nagasawa that is, that the theist has the better hand when compared to the atheist on this problem. So you might, uh, you can imagine the atheist doing what we've just said, right? But trying to trade off goods for evils and vice versa and kind of tying themselves around in knots. But with the theist, once they offer those reasons for thinking that the greatest metaphysically possible being is good and not evil, and you've got a much stronger case for a good God than an evil God or a mixed God or a morally neutral God, then you can cash all of these goods and evils out in God's perfect goodness. So it's got to be a stopping point. And I think that's what your your question was saying exactly there, Leon. And for the traditional theist, that's God's perfect goodness. And without that, it, it, it's difficult to say which way it should go, which way we should bracket goods and evils. Hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, and then there was something else I was thinking. Oh, okay. So, and now, you know, we're going to get into the subject of moral relativism because, uh, you know, people will obviously say, well, I mean, even religious systems and times, uh, they differ from one another in terms of what goodness means, uh, in terms of a purpose. So, I mean, to just give a few examples. So let's say with Christianity, the purpose is, let's say, just believing in Jesus and serving and worshiping God. Uh, let's say for, uh, let's say for Hinduism, right? Uh, the purpose is something a little bit different where you're supposed to kind of try your best to merge with the Brahma, right? So the ultimate nature with reality. Uh, with Buddhism, it's obviously nirvana, and the idea is you're getting out of the cycle of, uh, it's not necessarily reincarnation, because that's Hindu, it's more so the cycle of rebirth, which is its own thing. I mean, we don't have to get into it, it's a little bit more complicated. Uh, but the point is to say that, like, so you have fundamental differences in what the purpose is, and what goodness is, and what uh, a meaning really is, right? So then how do we, now with all of these different understandings of it, how do we sort of conceptualize, let's say if we are to conceptualize a good God, how are we able to say, oh, well, it's a good God in this system, or in this context as opposed to the other okay that's that's a great question i haven't thought about this one too much it might surprise you given that i've got a book on <laughs> the uh, god explicitly on the goodness of god because i think the traditional theist is going to take it just to be an objective system where you've got god's goodness like a platonic form of goodness and things reflect or partake in that goodness to some degree and so when you mentioned like relativism or um you might have like a subjectivist account of something or meaning or purpose i suppose it's always going to come back to does that reflect the objective goodness that is identical to god god is the maximal um the maximally great and good thing and does your purpose correspond to what that being would have your purpose to be which as you mentioned a moment ago is something like love god and your neighbor to the the best of your capacity and so that's the system which i think the theist is going to adopt well the traditional abrahamic monotheist and that's quite different to what hindu schools of thought and i know we're using hindu as a a term there to apply to such an enormous number of schools of thought but Jessica Frazier's chapter she speaks about how good and evil, like we don't have an imperative to be good or be evil in the same sense that you would for an Abrahamic believer, because she thinks to have an imperative requires to have an imperator, someone to say like, this is what you should do. 
And so she sees nothing wrong in a, I guess in a moral sense, in a deep moral sense, when you decide to knock down your karma a little bit and decide to do all of these things because you want to focus on something else. Maybe you want to like run a wonderfully successful philosophy podcast and, um, you know, and spend time with, with your friends and whatnot. And that comes at the cost of you not spending your time fighting uh, inequality and volunteering at the soup kitchen, right? Mm -hmm. She goes, well, if that's what you want to do, fair enough, but you're going to have to be prepared to accept the consequences of that, which has been set down in your in your karmic journey in your in your cycle of samsara you might have to do this again or go to some other realm or be some other being so she <laughs> says it's not the same for the hindu traditionally that it's mere and maybe she won't be happy with this oversimplification but i'm going to say it anyway it's just mere cause and effects for the hindu whereas for the abrahamic monotheist there's there's a strong imperative there that you ought in the strong sense to be doing good and not doing evil so in short, Leon, let, that's my way of dodging the question. <laughs> just going, here's what theists typically believe yeah. in, in very general terms, in large brushstrokes. And here's an example for what some Hindus might think. And I'm hoping you'll do the good thing rather than the evil thing and let me off with such an answer. <laughs> yeah and you know i remember when i uh for the first time in college when i read pascal's wager so what's so funny is that oftentimes uh so do you remember what pascal's wager was it's in the beginning of the book okay good yeah. okay so i just wanted to know if i had to go through it again okay cool so like uh people when they think of pascal's wager it's so interesting because they often think of it in terms of theism atheism and so when i actually read it the first time i thought about it just in terms of theism and religion so i first read it and i'm thinking wait but what if this is wrong though so not wrong in the sense that oh you're just like wasting your life or I don't know, you could have been having fun, you know, having sex, doing drugs, whatever, right? I actually didn't think about it in those terms. I was wondering, okay, but let's say Pascal's wager, let's say we take it seriously and we believe in a particular God or a particular religion and let's say, okay, I don't want to go to hell, I'm a Christian. But then I started thinking, but wait, but how do I know that that's the right religion? What if I go to a different type of hell because I believed in the wrong religion? So now I'm thinking, wait, so now Pascal's wager is like fucking killing me and it's freaking me out because I'm like, how do I know which is the right one? So now I'm like, wait, what if I don't go to this hell but I go to a different kind of hell. What if my judgment is going to be different because this version of morality is different from some other religions and they're going to tell me, hey, dude, you had it all wrong the whole time. And just to tag that, how genuine is your belief anyway once you've made that wager on a particular religion? You're just doing it to yeah. you know, not go to hell or to have a uh, you know, uh, happy eternal life. Right, right. So that's right. interesting. And yeah, that was yeah. brought up in the first chapter. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, Jack, so how would you address Pascal's wager? That's great. So the... Students at Durham are lecturing in philosophy of religion this term, and they hate Pascal's wager. <laughs> like there is something that tastes bad about it, right? It makes you go like, "There's a really interesting argument. I like the creativity of Pascal's thinking, and there's a reason it survived the test of time. We're talking about it now, 400 years on. But there's something that feels wrong about it. I don't think the reasons you guys have given are strong reasons for rejecting the argument. I'll say mm -hmm. something on each of them so yep. on your example alan you might think well you're just doing it for the wrong reasons and motivation matters to god god doesn't want you just believing in god because for selfish ends like for your own goodness and god certainly doesn't want to be treated like a racehorse or something like this where you're just gambling on god gambling is not something you should be doing anyway you shouldn't be focused on gambling especially with god as your uh as your slot machine 
there are ways we naturally form beliefs anyway, right? So perhaps you look at the argument and you go, well, it seems like a quite a weighty decision that I need to take very seriously. Maybe I will start hanging around with my Christian, Jewish or Muslim friends and go to their um, scripture study groups, go to their place of worship, and maybe I'll form a natural belief in God. Because we all find like these natural beliefs form in some way, right? With the, they're by being exposed to these belief systems. So I think you could start to believe in God quite naturally and in a way that God's not going to be upset with you if you look at the argument and go, well, maybe I should take this religion thing more seriously. On your point, Leon, which is like there are so many uh, religions, there are so many types of God or concepts of God. How would I know which one to believe in? And there's a brilliant cartoon, which I forget what newspaper was in. It would only take a brief Google search to find it. And this person's at the gates of heaven and the person's uh, the God's there. And he's like, well, there's loads of gods there or something like this. And the person's like, well, I didn't know which one to, to gamble on, right? Mm -hmm. So many. And I suppose the response to this, just in terms of Pascal, is looking at all of these. If you have all of these gods, you just plug them into your equation again. You go, well, that's not a reason not to believe, right? If there's a hundred gods and all of them are threatening me with an eternity of hell, then I should still gamble on a god. It would still be unreasonable for me to go, oh, well, I've only got a one in a hundred chance of infinite happiness and, and pleasure in heaven. I just, I'm just not going to bother. You go, oh, you may still, the finite gain that you might get from, uh, what were your examples again, Leon, having sex and... Yeah, well, sex, drugs, whatever, rock and roll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, so you get a finite game maybe with sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but I've, that's not a message I endorse or want to be taken out of context. <laughs> but compared to the infinite happiness or pleasure you could get, it still makes sense to to gamble on one of them. So I, I don't think those two reasons are, are strong enough for rejecting the wager. And to be honest, imagine you're thinking, so what is a reason to reject it? I'm not sure if I'm being brutally honest how to reject it. I think my reason for not taking it to be one of the best arguments for the existence of God or best reasons better put to believing in God mm -hmm. is that I think it's metaphysically, if not logically impossible for a perfectly good God, which I think God must be if God exists, God must be perfect. I don't think that that God would create a place of eternal suffering, deserved or undeserved. I don't think hell's metaphysically logic or logically possible for favorite for, for any right. i don't want to say sensible conception of god or any it's a conception of god that i think is uh weight worthy or is worth taking seriously mm. yeah so i think from what i understand from what you're saying i hear you saying well two things right so number one we are ultimately kind of existentially speaking we are responsible for our choices so whatever the consequences may be you can't really run away from making them you can't just say oh i wash my hands of this because you're ultimately living you are a living creature or a living human and as a human you have to make a decision and you do ultimately have to gamble that's the first part of what i hear you saying and then the second part is saying that like okay even if you do make the wrong choice or you do make the wrong gamble because god is some is all good he's not someone uh, he she whatever uh they're not somebody who's essentially going to punish you for making a bad bet mm. would, would that be accurate mm. No, I not the last part, all mm -hmm. up until the last part. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I just don't think God would inflict an eternity. Like the idea, the Pascal's wager works in a sense because you've got that infinite place of suffering, mm -hmm. um, like that bad. And I just don't think God can create that infinite place of suffering. All right. Hmm. It's not that necessarily that God wouldn't punish you. Um, I think perhaps God might be able to punish you in a finite way in order to bring about some greater good in line with God's perfect goodness. But I just don't think that hell's a place that God's able to create. Now, that still means there is a place of, there may be a place of infinite happiness and pleasure in union with God in heaven. Mm -hmm. And perhaps you might have a, a eschatological view in which you don't have a hell, but you simply burn out, you, 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 um, you disappear and you don't exist anywhere. God ends your existence totally. Um, that might be one reason for favoring the wager as an argument though because you still want the infinite happiness but i guess it depends on your preferences right, right. You, maybe have you seen the end of the good place have you watched this tv show no i actually you know it's so funny i started it but i haven't yes so it. many people have recommended it so so yeah what happens you can spoil it you sure i'm allowed to spoil it yeah well please, yeah please. but they exist in a place which is similar to heaven and then eventually all of the main characters decide to go through this door where they uh, they blow out or burn out or just disappear from existence. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, after spending all this time in, in a place of infinite happiness and pleasure, they decide that, hey, I'd rather just not exist at all. And so depending wow. on what kind of afterlife you you want, I suppose that's a good question to ask yourself. Do you want to hang out with God forever in this place where you're always going to be happy? Then the wager's got a good reason for you to take theism seriously. Are you satisfied with life in the world and You'd rather maximize your finite good here and, and not have to exist uh, for eternity in heaven with God, then maybe you should uh, embrace the life of the, I don't want to say hedonist. Maybe you can focus on now and not believe in God. Well, is it, it's kind of interesting. It sort of seems like also what you're saying is that if you if you gamble, uh, let's say, uh, I don't know, I guess if you gamble well or whatever, it's like your reward, it's not so much about punishment, but the ultimate reward is sort of more freedom. You get to do more things or maybe experience more of what you would may, may, may want to experience, may enjoy, whatever it is. But it's more like um, going into just thinking about this in terms of non-existence. The idea here is that, it's again, it's not so much internal damnation, but uh, you get kind of more liberty or more freedom. And again, I would argue maybe more free will. Would that be it? You get more liberty and free will by choosing the worldly goods. Well, well, no. So by actually choose by making a choice uh, with Pascal's wager, but choosing to let's say believe in God. The idea is it's not so much about eternal punishment or whatever. Let's say a really extreme, you know, kind of harsh punishment, but it's more so about the ability to then kind of move about in the way that you see fit. Because what I hear you saying is when you use uh, let's say the good place as an example, you're ultimately saying, well, it's not so much that uh, let's say existence or non-existence is really a good or bad thing. It's ultimately that they get to choose when they find that okay their lives are over okay now you know we've already that's kind of our reward our reward is we get to decide when we want to kind of vanish into thin air right and i hear that that's what i hear you saying you're saying that ultimately you get rewarded with more liberty yeah i think i think that's a good way of putting it i should also mention though that so i agree with the the sentiment there Leon, on the basis of what i've just been saying i should also heavily note that i'm not a pascal scholar nor have i studied pascal's mm -hmm. wager in in enormous depth and i was thinking a moment ago like well if that really was my preference and it would be better to exist in heaven or, or go out of existence then maybe you can plug that in too so it's simply a suggestion right but ultimately my, my point on the wager 
more fundamentally that I do think and I think strongly is that it's impossible for there to be a place of infinite suffering. So the wage is not as strong of the reason as Pascal makes it seem. I gotcha. Okay, and now going back into the talk that you guys did uh, with Richard Dawkins, Richard Swinburne, and others. So there was a really interesting point of it, and I really wanted to touch on it, at least for a, a little bit. Uh, so uh, there was this point of contention between the two of them, and I guess I wonder what your perspective is on it. So on the one hand, Richard Swinburne was saying, well, you know, God is kind of simple, so we get the simple solution, you know, and obviously you're looking at Occam's razor, you're saying, you know, parsimony, and the, simple, the simplest answer is likely the right one. But then Dawkins would say, but that doesn't make sense, because how do we have so much complexity for simplicity. And that I feel like takes us back to where we started from. Wait, hold on, let me just finish. So that just, uh, that takes us back to where we started from, where I said, you know, how does red produce yellow? So because Dawkins would say, well, okay, so great, we have all of this complexity, but you're ultimately saying that God is simple or the simplest answer. You know, maybe there's a distinction there that really wasn't uh, articulated you know, well or at all. But then I guess I would wonder, right? So how is it possible? And, and first, I do want to hear just your take on it. But then I also wonder just the challenge here to Richard Swinburne is yes, how is it possible that something so complex comes from something so simple or is that just a misunderstanding of what he was saying so this i think you're right is the fundamental disagreement between the two of them in that debate and dawkins went on to write something after the debate on his substack or a blog post in which he breaks down in more detail what his thoughts on simplicity are i mean the same point actually came up in a brilliant debate between richard dawkins and the former Archbishop Rowan Williams in Oxford. I think it was Sir Anthony Kenny who was moderating their debate. Mm -hmm. uh, forgive me if it wasn't Kenny, but I'm just going to carry on saying it was for, for this point. So Kenny makes a really interesting point in the debate. He says, well, Dawkins's claim is that we have a complex world and from that uh, we have something which... Um, he thinks is a complex thing like God. And he gets, there's a few ways in which that comes out in the debate with Swinburne and Jonas and Frazier. He says, like, can God read everybody's minds at this very moment? And Swinburne's like, yes. And he's like, like everyone, he knows what I'm thinking right now. And he's like, yes. And they're like, there's a way in which God can have those complex functions, but that doesn't mean that God has to be complex in God's self as an entity. And Kenny gives the great example of like a, a razor blade, right? A razor blade is simple. Like I can, I can shave with it, um, but I can also take the blade and I can slice your throat with it. <laughs> take a, a beard trimmer in contrast. Like it's got a complex essence or nature or structure, but you can only really do one or a handful of things with it. You can just like, uh, you can trim your beard thinking out loud maybe you can trim a bit of your your lawn or something or your front garden without um but maybe it wouldn't be very effective at that but the blade you can do loads of stuff with you can open envelopes you can slit throats you can shave your face so there we've got a complex thing which can only have a simple function and a simple thing that has lots of complex functions and for swinburne he thinks that god is more like the razor blade that god is immutable um with like unchanging and is simple, i.e. has no uh, parts or component parts. And that's the sense in which God's simple. And I think their confusion often comes down to that. Are we talking complexity of function or are we talking complexity of essence? Mm -hmm. And I think if you're going to 
force my answer on this is that I'd say that Swinburne's right or should be right in the sense that if God did create the world, then God has to be simple in essence and can't be complex and have parts. Oh, very interesting. But then, okay, now going back to what I was saying earlier, so then uh, my question again would be, okay, but isn't it the same as what we were talking about before where they're just looking at one aspect of it? Because, I mean, ultimately, if you think about it, everything is both simple and complex, right? So uh, let's say the coffee cup in front of me, I mean, it's obviously simple because it's just a cup, but it's made up of God knows how many molecules, right? And then that's made up of God knows how many atoms. So I guess I wonder, is it again us just choosing to focus on a perspective that suits an argument? How do you mean that there are, th there are going to be things that are simpler than other things, though, right? Cause you, are there? You, yeah, like things with fewer parts, things with fewer aspects to them. Right, right, but what I'm right. So I agree with you there, right? So, but what I wonder is that because everything is ultimately made up of so much stuff. I mean, it's like if you go down into the details, nothing is really either simple or complicated. So it's more like, uh, let's say, if you read, uh, I, I mean, this is going to be uh, just a back a simple example. Uh, so let's say if you read like a psychology 101 textbook, right? And you'll think, oh my God, you know, I know so much about psychology. And it's like, well, you kind of don't, right? You only get like sort of the fundamental understanding of it. But if you dig into the details and the complexity of it, it's not simple like that, right? So let's say in terms of treatment, a good example of, oh my God, this is actually a perfect example. CBT, right? So cognitive behavioral therapy is oftentimes mischaracterized as being too simplistic. So these motherfuckers are not CBT therapists, let me tell you. So CBT therapy is incredibly complicated. So yeah. Yes, it's simple on the surface. Yes, you can take a class on C you can take a class on CBT and you could probably learn CBT within an afternoon. But to get down to like the actual like nuances and actually become an expert at it, it takes a lot of work and a lot of practice. So there are certain ways of discussing things with people. There are certain ways of challenging beliefs, obviously. Uh there are certain things you can say, you can say to certain people. So there's much more nuance than just, hey, this is your belief, this is the emotion attached to it, yada yada, evidence for and against, right? It's not like that. So you have to kind of uh you what's the word? Uh, through experience, you have to kind of like get a feel for what would work for one person as opposed to another. And there's so much complexity in it, right? So what I'm saying is that, again, you could read a psychology 101 textbook and you could say, okay, this is super simple. It makes a lot of sense. I'm an expert in psychology. But then when you go down into other classes, now you get into the details of what all of these concepts mean. So that's why, so I do agree with you, just to be clear. Yes, there are things that at least on the surface seem simpler than others. But again, when you go down into it, that's why I mentioned the coffee cup. It's made up of so much stuff that we don't see that's beyond the surface. So that's what I'm saying. It's like, yes, on the surface, it seems like the coffee cup is pretty simple, but it's actually really complex because it's made up of God knows how many molecules and atoms. Mm, okay, good. That makes more sense then. I think the examples that you use there are the things that always have more complexity. From your examples, they're all like worldly things, things within time and space, right? Mm -hmm. When you think of, like, take uh, numbers or concepts or the laws of uh, logic or something. Like mm -hmm. the principle of non-contradiction or the number three or the number two or triangle, right? These are, are the, these are really simple concepts, um, which have, like, they're pretty transparent. When you hear those things, you know exactly what they are. There is nothing more to them than what I've lit, what you could state about them. And in that sense, those things which are not within time and space are significantly simpler if not simple i.e have no parts they're simply what the thing is and so god would be one of these things like it would have to uh, muhammad salazar has got this excellent chapter in the book on the necessary existence where he argues that god 
would have to like have be this uh, single divine attribute being like it just have to be by let's take a uh, the perfect being thesis again god is the greatest metaphysically possible being or just take the concept of necessary existent you know, just take that like take that concept necessary existent mm -hmm. that's all there is to that concept and he argues in there in, with a bunch going through a bunch of responses to that that there must be a necessary existence uh, simply in virtue of the concept of necessary existence and so necessary existence contains well as a statement it contains like uh letters and the way those two words are related to each other for the meaning of it but the actual concept is really really simple and so in that way you can't reduce it to complexity the things that fall out of the idea of a necessary existent are complex so you get the simple starting point and the complex end which is what we want whereas your argument i think was saying you've got complex things um in the world that seem to are you saying they produce simple things or like you can always make things that seem simple more complex or something right. like that. Yeah, let me just yeah, go back to it. Yeah, so what I'm saying is that I, I my sense was that we're, we're doing kind of what uh, a, a little bit of uh, mental gymnastics here. Is that like going back to the good and evil argument, right? Where again, good becomes evil, good, evil becomes good, et cetera, et cetera. I feel like in this case, we're just sort of picking a side that uh, feels like it makes sense, right? So it's like we're saying, uh, because first of all, everything, in my opinion, right? Everything is both simple and complex, depending on the way you look at it. Yes, on the surface, things are simpler, but but even still, you can simplify almost anything. So with that said, my perspective or, you know, my, uh, I guess, challenge here would have been, isn't it so that we're just saying, okay, yes, God is simple, but like ultimately it's because it sort of fits an argument that we're trying to make that be, it has to necessarily be simple. So meaning that if something, um, let's say complicated, meaning that it can't, so what, at least from what we're seeing in the world, because things are both simple and complex based on perspective, my hunch was that like there was just a focus on the perspective that fit the argument that you were looking for. So if let's say the argument as well, you know, simplicity, uh, we need an argument that's, let's say, you know, again, parsimonious, we need something simple to say, well, yes, you know, to invoke Occam's razor, right? So it's so easy for us then to look at God and say, well, let's focus on the simple side, just like if I'm just saying, well, this is a coffee cup, as opposed to maybe, I don't know, talking about the millions of molecules that it's made out of, right? So I was just wondering, isn't it so, or isn't it possible that maybe God is both simple and complicated, and then, but, you know, the focus is on the simple, simple aspect of it, because it suits an argument here, and the argument here is one for invoking, again, Occam's razor for simplicity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, good. So I suppose when the theist says that God is simple, they simply mean that God has no proper parts. Mm -hmm. And that seems like a, it's difficult to reconcile that with God's other attributes, right? And there's a long, di long discussion on all of that. Uh, I suppose in the same way that, again, to take the example of a number, like the number one, you can only reduce it, like the concept of one, just to the number one like that's what it is like he's right. literally saying giving the the identity of what that thing is and it doesn't have any parts i um, in the same way as these other concepts don't have parts and so they think god's like that um so yeah and, and simply reporting there again what what theists think again like uh god doesn't have you know, maybe with a trinitarian conception of god again right. you try say how these three holy spirit and the word and god the father are all separate um yet the same in in within the concept um 
again, I, I, you'd have to ask someone who's reflected on this a little bit more. But the the point is that you need the simplest possible starting point you can get. And if God has no parts, then it seems like God is a very good starting point. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because I mean, my uh, I guess somewhat of a pushback here would be well, the number one is made out of parts because um, it's, so it's divisible, right? Everything is divisible except for zero. I mean, I guess you could just say zero isn't made out of parts, but zero doesn't really exist in the I, world. I hear you. You you essentially are saying it's a it's a semantics game. Like for yeah. the sake of argument, oh, I'm going to call this concept yes. simple, therefore framing it as simple, but it could also be framed as complex. Yes. And but uh, I'm understanding that you know just like the number one. God is a uh, necessary existent. It's 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 it exists. It's like how should I put it? It's not something that could be broken down to parts. It's not something that you can exactly uh, conceptualize. Mm -hmm. um, wait, so can I? That's ask responsible for everything. Yeah. So wait, so can yeah. I ask now because you gave me an idea? Uh, so Jack, are you then saying that when we're actually saying simple, we don't mean simple as something in the world would be considered simple? You're saying a metaphysical version of simplicity. Yeah. I'm so two things. I'm saying that. Met a metaphysical notion of simplicity is what God embodies right. or is, right? But also, I think that's true when we use the examples of things in the world. Like, I think that the razor blade is simpler than the beard trimmer. Like, it does have few. We can imagine it having fewer parts when you put two next to each other. Mm -hmm. It does need to, um, to have uh, to, to be a simpler entity. Um, in that same way, I think that God is metaphysically simple to the to the greatest possible degree you just keep bringing it down mm -hmm. i got you okay and then now as we begin to start uh wrapping up here oh uh, so here's what i actually want to focus a little bit more on you jack personally so okay just in terms of your own uh sort of philosophical metaphysical trajectory so what were the pivotal points in shaping your own philosophy about god that's good that's a great question i suppose i was was Brought up in a secular household, I remember a friend at school, and my sister's friend at school was a, uh, what was she? Um, I forget what school of Christianity she was a part of, but in essence, she was uh, she was trying to evangelize my, my sister. And she asked my mom, like, hey, what shall I do? And she's like, giving me these, talking to me about God and Jesus and stuff. She was like, you can listen, but just always remember that they're just stories. And so like, I, I suppose I had the same kind of idea instilled in me from an early age. And I suppose my parents and wider family, no one's like a strong atheist. No one's a, no one comes close to theism really, but they embody that, you know, there must be something more or, but like, a, you know, none of the religions reflect that. I suppose teenage years, I became quite a strong atheist as many people do. That's a very common narrative arc and uh, i suppose um in our time and then yeah I, I started the phd and i spoke to you guys last when i was in the middle of the phd i'm not sure where i was with the project when i spoke to you last but i i was defending the evil god challenge as what i thought was one of the best arguments exempt against the existence of god i was still a i was still an atheist i was still a maybe i wasn't a materialist then because i was uh, we were doing the mind book, weren't we? I've been open mm -hmm. to uh, some what you might call non-materialism sense. But I was still defending the evil God challenge. I thought it was the best argument against the existence of God, sincerely. 
And that's why I wanted to develop it as part of my thesis and go, let's really spell out the argument and see what's going on here. And then the more and more I got into it, I think I was about halfway through writing the thesis, which is, it's, is the draft, the first draft of what the book now is. And then I started to find all of these little asymmetries as we were speaking about earlier, just like little things where I thought, oh, that's only a little one. Like, you know, we can put that one aside and we'll find something to counterbalance that as we go. And they kept building and building and building and building. And then eventually I found myself just writing and researching and in the shadow of all of these arguments against my position. And you kind of have to go, well, all right, let's start. Let, let's, let's follow this and let's, let's explore these in some more detail. Mm. And I found that, um, yeah, I think the evil God challenge can be defeated. I don't think it's a, a strong argument against the existence of God. And I think theists have very good reasons for believing that, that God is good. And around the same time I was putting together this edited collection and been exposed to some of the arguments which actually argue for the existence of this being i found myself uh, having uh, finding value in them as well so i've ended up being you know i suppose the journey involves in summary like just being secular or not thinking about it too much a little and then moving to strong atheism and then throughout the course of the phd and the books out this year finding that I'm much more inclined towards theism than than I ever expected to be. Oh, I gotcha. And just curious, have you ever read J.L. Mackey's The Miracle of Theism? I haven't read The Miracle of Theism. I've read a bunch of Mackey-like papers and stuff, though. Oh, How's you... You would love it, man. Well, I mean, you know, obviously depending, but I, I think just from an intellectual perspective, you would love it. So first of all, I just let me be clear about this. So Mackie is an incredibly difficult writer. So what he does is for one sentence, he'll take like eight to 10 lines for one sentence. I kid you not. Horrific. And so uh, so my mentor, like my college mentor was mentored by him. And he was like, yeah, man, like Mackie was notoriously uh, right, difficult to read. Right. So whatever. I read this book. Uh, this was probably about, I don't know, five, six years ago, whatever it was. It, it's first of all, it's a pretty big book. And again, super challenging. I mean, I mean, it probably takes you a while to get through a couple of pages. So, but with that said, so th this is what Mackie does. So he goes from, he actually goes, and I don't think that in my opinion, I mean, obviously, listen, maybe there are experts who could correct me. I don't think he straw mans anything. So what he does is he goes from, so he goes from all of the, to all of the arguments, right? So the teleological, the ontological, so everything that's pretty much the, the popular, let's say philosophy, uh, let's say arguments, right? So, and he'll go through all of them. And obviously this was a million years ago now. So he'll go through all of them and he'll challenge them one by one and ultimately what Mackie does is in, the, in this book is, and this is how it kind of concludes uh, I mean you know if you want to read it it's not that much of a spoil I think uh, so what Mackie does is he picks apart every single argument again you might disagree that he picked it apart but he picks apart every single argument and then he ultimately argues well the reason why there is no God and he is a strong atheist the reason why there's no God is because like when you put all of these arguments together they all fall apart so there's nothing actually there's nothing indicating the likelihood of God because these arguments are fundamentally he says they're pretty much really terrible and so but why it's such a good book, you know, obviously you could be a theist, atheist, whatever, is because at the very least he treats every single argument seriously. So rather than just either strawmanning it, uh, explaining it away, making it seem or sound ridiculous, you know, he doesn't really do any of that. So and he devotes a good amount of time to each argument into picking it apart. And again, he doesn't make it ridiculous, which I really appreciate it. So yeah, I mean, he ultimately says because all of these arguments kind of fall flat on their face, there's just nothing holding up the probability of God. So he doesn't actually, from my vague memory of it, he doesn't actually say that there is no God. You 
you can't really make that claim. But he says, based on what we know and based on all of the arguments, the strongest arguments for him or her, whomever, uh, the understanding is it's a very, very low probability. I would even argue that Richard Dawkins, uh, The God Delusion, is based on Mackey's book. I don't know if he takes the, makes the connections, but a lot of what he says in The God Delusion very, very much sounds like Mackey. So yeah, if you ever get a chance, you would really love his work. He's just a brilliant, he was a brilliant thinker. Cool. Yeah, I'll definitely check it out. Thank you, Dan. Yeah, you got it, man. Okay, so uh, as we wrap up, Alan, final questions? Okay, I just have to say this. All right, by the way, I've changed my stance on uh, Adam Sandler. <laughs> I have. So here's the thing. <laughs> so, Adam, no, no. Yeah, so first of all, I love how many mentions of Adam Sandler there are in the book. Like, for example, there's this one thing I just have to, I have to say. By the way, oh, before I even read this, mm. there was, I was really hoping that you were going to say the only good argument for an evil god is Adam Sandler <laughs> movies. I was waiting for that and just, yeah, that would have been fun. But yeah, um, I just love that there's this one point. This is just at the beginning of the book, too. You, ju you literally juxtapose Joseph Stalin and adam sandler and it was uh i don't know i just found it funny and uh like that kind of thing throughout the book i mean of course just beautiful book in general but that was just made it so entertaining to read so yeah and billy that, madison was such a good movie no that's the <laughs> argument for an evil guy no i'm sorry jack go ahead daniel hill's chapter the opening one and obviously i'm working with them to sort of help it follow the narrative and be of a certain style and so I encouraged him to put this line about Adam Sandler in. And we went through a few different evil dictators when, when trying to decide who to juxtapose. Difficult <laughs> language, isn't it? We've basically given up on it in, in Birmingham. Um, the What's the point? Sorry. And so we went through a different, uh, a range of different evil leaders uh, to compare to have next to him i thought the stalin one was maybe the one of the the more appropriate that we went through but yeah there's there's a few in there i think this sandra bullock gets a a bit of a hard time in this book there's not mm -hmm. many red ones but yeah the the most it's always nice that the most i like this the most controversial thing about the books both of them or independently seems to be that people either enjoy these pop culture references or just like or it infuriates them we try and keep them off page in the info boxes as much as possible but i don't know i don't know why people yeah here, here's my worry right my worry is that sometimes when there's a pop culture reference in the book that someone might think you know like in these old textbooks or um when someone's trying to be cool and they'll be like hey you like this thing right well, philosophy likes that. Oh, this philosopher likes that too. Like, look how down with the kids we are. Or something like that. Like, and that's not what they are, right? So yeah. they're obviously just like, the joke is it's absurd to have that thing in there. Mm -hmm. But I think I've had a few messages <laughs> regarding the uh, the draft of the first book, The Proofs. Sorry, the second book. We're putting together the second book and people have said, I think you should remove these pop culture references. They make it seem like you, you're trying too hard to like be mm -hmm. cool. And I was like, no, that's <laughs> that's not the point in them. I don't think like these these people are cool topics of discussion, right? <laughs> They're there because you've got the serious topic, and next to it you've got this character who doesn't belong there, and that's why that's why it's slightly amusing. Yeah, I find it fun actually. I I don't agree with uh, removing it actually. Uh... No, it gives a it's it's actually like it feels like an injection of a little bit of fun. 
yeah. while you're reading. The text in itself is fantastic and entertaining anyway. No issue. It's not like you're reading dry academic text or anything like that. There's no ex experience like that. But still, that injection of fun kind of just raises your mood a little bit as you're reading. It's just part of the journey. I don't know. Yeah, and also the message there is like life isn't that serious. Like honestly, at the end of the day, don't sit there and just worry about whether there is or isn't a god. Like go live. So <laughs> and, and, and watch an Adam Sandler. Yeah, watch an Adam Sandler. Chlorophyll, more like borophyll. <laughs> wow. Okay. So Alan, final questions for Jack before we wrap up. Yo, that was a great movie. Yeah. So uh Jack, of course, uh if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, and of course buy the book. Uh, where can we do that? Uh, I wouldn't bother following me per se. I would pick up Philosophers on God talking about existence by just searching it online. Mm. Philosophers on God. Defeating the Evil God Challenge, the book that comes out in June, it's priced quite high, and so I wouldn't recommend picking <laughs> it up. And maybe that's bad to say. Like, okay, we maybe... won't follow you. We won't buy your books. We got it. But buy the Philosophers on God book, which retails at a very modest, maybe nine to eleven dollars or ten pounds. I think that that's that's a great price for a book, and it's beautiful as well. My copies arrived recently, and I'm I'm delighted with them. They look really really nice. So if anything, they're gonna look great on your bookshelf. But hopefully, mm -hmm. uh, after listening to this interview, this our conversation today, you'll be interested in reading it as well. Defeating the Evil God Times is a bit more expensive. It's an academic text. It's quite dense. Um. It's quite pricey because the hardback comes out in June and the paperback doesn't come out for a while. So if you're interested, uh, my purchasing consumer advice would be to pick up the ebook or something like this um, if you're particularly interested in exploring that in, in some detail. Um, our podcast as well is the Pan Psycast, which I'm sure the name is in the description somewhere. And Absolutely. Yeah, just um, just engage with philosophers on god or the pan psychast or keep listening to seize the moment and you won't go far wrong i love it and just to say also to add to that uh your pan psychast man it's legit one of the best podcasts i've ever heard mm -hmm. so you guys do such a wonderful job man and just the fact that you let the uh you let the guests pretty much do a lot of the work and you guys ask these really poignant and kind of like sharp questions and then you just let it flow i love that so much and just the guests that you guys have on phenomenal legit like as far as like psychology well philosophy sorry uh as far as philosophy podcasts go i if it's not even honestly i might be exaggerating but i do think it is the best but at the very least it's a top five podcast out there thank you Alan. i appreciate that um I, coming from you guys as well uh that 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 means a lot and thank you as well i think i think it might have been you leon it might have been alan who after reading the philosophers on consciousness book put a couple of things out there online and said it was one of your your favorite books of the year or something and that made yes Oh yeah, deal. a review I think I put. Yeah. Oh yeah, he reviewed it. Yeah, and I put it up on my list of like top books of whatever it was twenty twenty one. Yeah. Uh -huh. Thank you both. It, it really means a lot. You do, you do a great job with seize the moment, and I was genuinely looking forward to to coming on and catching up with you both, and uh, it didn't disappoint. It's been a pleasure. So absolutely, thank you. and for us too, man. This was such a great show. This was legit one of my favorites of the year. Yes. Thank you. All right, Jack. We'll talk to you soon. Care, man. Feel better. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. I will. <laughs> All right. See you, man. All right. That was awesome. So, so good. Yeah. So everyone, if you'd like to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram. On Twitter, we're at Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell, bell on, on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time.